kind of some live polling, right, to see what you think. So who cares what I think? I want to know what you think. So if you don't have a phone that sends text messages, that is okay. Uh, but what you're going to do, you can still participate, you can still see. So we're going to ask some questions, and you're going to text in a response. I know this is like blowing some of your minds. It's okay. And we will see results live, okay? So what you need to do is go to your phone, open a new text message, and you're going to send it to the number 37607. That's the number you're going to send the text to. And then, Steve, let's go to the next slide. The message you're going to send to join in the conversation is Huntington FEC, all one word, okay? So send a message uh, to 37607. The message is Huntington FEC. And if you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, it's going to be cool. So if you have trouble, maybe just raise your hand and anybody under the age of 30 can come help you, okay? <laughs> all right, so I need some 20-year-olds and 18-year-olds to volunteer to help, okay? So you can join at any time in this. So let's go, let's go, Steve. I want to ask some kind of funny questions to get started, and then we'll, we'll jump into more sermon-related material. Uh, so Steve's going to put it up there. It might be kind of small, so let me, let me read it. Okay, I want to know what you think. All right. When is it appropriate to decorate your house for Christmas? Because we got all kinds of things over there. Is it all year long? Is it right after Halloween, right after Thanksgiving? Is it only in December? Is it never? So you just send A, B, C, D, or E. Oh, we got some Scrooges in the room. We got some nevers. We got some nevers. And then we got some Santas in the room. Uh, we've got... Uh, <laughs> I think some of you have a preference, but maybe your spouse doesn't like that preference. Uh, but it looks like the consensus, for all you jokers who already have your house decorated is right after Thanksgiving. Uh, all right, let's go to the next question, Steve. Okay, this is a little bit different question. You can respond with anything, any word, okay? So you just send a word. Make sure it's one word. Don't put a space in there, okay? In your opinion, what food must be present at a Thanksgiving meal to make it great? What has to be there? Otherwise, Thanksgiving is totally missed, okay? You submit anything. Right? And it's going to populate. We're going to see what everyone thinks. We got all over the place. But words that are bigger means that more people have responded to that. So obviously turkey and dressing, somebody figured out you can use emojis. We got an action. <laughs> I think that's a chicken. I'm pretty sure that's a chicken. But you know, I guess, I guess do your thing, you know. Chicken and dumplings maybe? So we got mostly turkey and dressing. I don't, I see some weird stuff on there. I'm not going to lie. What is turkey noodles? What is turkey noodles? Who knows? All right, let's go to the next question, Steve, before I get anything crazy. Let's see. Hopefully it'll load. All right. Cannot even see the question. Here's the question. I know it. What are you most thankful for during this season? This was the question I hated answering as a kid at grandma's house, but I'm going to ask it now. What is, <laughs> what are you most thankful for this season? Uh, somebody misspelled mashed potatoes. I'm not going to call you out, but you misspelled mashed potatoes. 
So we got a lot of family. We got some uh, broccoli cheese casserole. We got some God, some Jesus. We got a lot of things to be thankful for. Uh, pumpkin, togetherness, time. Those are good. Grandbabies. There you go. Our right, next question. Next question, Steve. Uh, we'll start getting a little bit more uh, focused towards the sermon. Uh, I just, I wanted to know who's in here, right? Who are we as a group? So what, what is your age range? Again, I just want you to know these are totally anonymous. I can't go back and track this to what you put. So if you put something weird, uh, that's okay. I just want to know who do we have in the room? Who are we? Where are we at with God? But first, let's talk about this. Okay, so we got... Uh, I know some of you that are above 66 don't text, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we're, we're losing some of our people there. Uh, but that's pretty interesting. Uh, we either have a lot of texters young, or we're just really younger than 50 in here. Uh, so we got a mix from young to old. All right, next question, Steve. I want to know, uh, how many years have you been a part of this church? This church right here. Uh, how many years have you been coming, a member, whatever? Is it less than a year, 1 to 5, 6 to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 30, more than 30 years? How long have you been part of this church? So I just wanted to know, what, who are we in the room? What's our, what's our makeup? Where are we at? Um, wow, I thought we'd have more older ones. I'm pretty shocked, actually. We have a lot of people... I'm responding live to this too, okay? So I just happen to have a microphone and I'm trying to say what I think. But a lot of people, one to five years, wow, that's interesting. Um, I had to stop and think. I think I'm in the 11 to 20 range. Um, that's good. That's good. All right, Steve, next question. We'll get a little bit more focused towards what we're going to talk about today. What one word would you use to describe your, the quality of your relationship with God? The quality. Is it strong? Is it weak? Is it tired? Is it... Is it faithful? Is it, uh, I don't know, what's your word? Pro uh, progress, that's great. What is your one word to describe your relationship with God? Um, it's pretty interesting uh, to see. And, and again, I, I love your honesty, right? I can't track this back to you. I'm not going to come and track you down this week and say, what did you, what did you mean by that? Um, it's good for us to be honest and and we've got all kinds of things. There's growing, uh, stagnant, on and off, consistent, fantastic, inconsistent, rocky, right? Uh, amazing, ongoing. Uh, so again, just like we got every age in here, we've got different lengths of time in this church. But we, I think, I'm just trying to draw conclusions as I look at this. We're kind of all over the map where we're at with God, right? Looks like a lot of people are growing, but we also have some people in here that are struggling, right? That's good. That's good. I don't know if that encourages you or discourages you. Um, last question. How would you describe your relationship with God? A, I'm definitely saved. I have a strong relationship with God. B, definitely saved. My relationship with God is not super strong. C, I don't know where I'm at with God. D, I'm definitely not saved but I'm seeking a relationship. And E, definitely not saved. I don't even know if I want a relationship. Um, again, I can't track this to your phone. I'm not going to be able to figure out who sent what. 
Um, but I'm intrigued to know where people are at, uh, who sits in our audience today, right? And we'll give it a sec to let people respond. I don't know how many were in the 70s. Um, that's interesting. We did this with the youth on a Wednesday night, and our numbers were about 80%. We're pretty sure they were saved. And then about 20% uh, said they didn't know where they were at or they definitely weren't saved. Um, but look, I think what we see from this, and I hope what uh, you see, is that we're a little bit all over the map in here. Uh, we, we come with a diverse range of experiences with God. Uh, Steve, you can go back to the slides. Um, we, we've got uh, a lot of people that decorate uh, early, and we've got people that never decorate. We've got young, we've got old, we've got uh, new members, we've got not old, but seasoned members. Uh, we've got people that are strong in their walk, and we've got people that are struggling in their walk. We've got a diverse range of who sits in this room. And I don't know if that's eye-opening to you, but more than half of you said, I know I'm saved, but I don't think I have a strong relationship with God, right? About half and half. <laughs> it's pretty eye-opening. The people we sit with in church every week, and that's where we're at. Um, the beauty of what we're going to do today so God's word speaks to us wherever you're at. Whether you're one of the ones that it's fantastic and strong and faithful, or whether you're one of the ones that it's rocky and inconsistent, or I don't even know where I'm at with God. God's word is meant to speak to us. Um, so if you would, let me pray, and then we'll jump into Psalm 51, okay? God, I pray that you would help us this morning, help me to speak clearly, uh, to... Uh, just let your word speak for itself, God. I pray that we would um, be a body that is encouraging one another, helping one another, helping those who are new to the faith, um, helping those who are struggling, being there for them, God. I pray this morning, as David is going to pray, God, that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation. God, we need that. And so help us to understand your word. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, let's go to Psalm 51. We'll start, and it may not even be verse number one for you, but it's a little heading. And here's what it says. Uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so before we ever even jump into Psalm 51, we don't always get this in Psalms, but sometimes you get a little heading at the top that tells you why this song was written. I don't know if you like to listen to artists, musicians explain why they wrote a song, um, but we're going to get that explanation this morning from David. He's going to tell us what was going on in his life when he penned this. And so I think it's important for us to go back and understand who's, who's David, who's Nathan, why is he a prophet, who is Bathsheba. So if you would, skip Psalm 51 and we'll come read it at the end. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. Again, it'll be on the screen. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 1, Okay. And I want you to see the story. I want, you to feel what, uh, I want you to feel what David feels when he penned this psalm. And here's what it says in 2 Samuel 11. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened. <laughs> it's an ominous Two words. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of his messengers said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's important. So you think, oh, David's going, oh, oh, sorry. Nope, verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So obviously some time happens, right, before she found out she was pregnant. And this daytime drama all of a sudden takes a turn, right? Because what was just between two people has all of a sudden become very uh, public. It's very difficult to hide this, right? And uh, David's got to decide, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be in this moment as he gets this news that she is pregnant? So he hatches a plan, and I don't know what you think his plan is going to be, but many of you know this story. But go to verse 6. It says, so David sent word to Joab, the commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. That's her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He sounds so nice uh, and concerned. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your own house? And Uriah said, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He's an honorable man, a military man, stuck to his principles. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. I don't know if David thought his plan was over, but he keeps taking it a little bit further. So Uriah, that's really hard to say, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he, David, made him, Uriah, drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. A man of principle. He's not going to go see his wife because he's got to stay focused. So David... Man, he thought maybe I can trick him to thinking this is his baby, but he can't. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men on the other side. Verse 17, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. If you skip down, Joab sends a messenger all the way to verse 25. And he tells him the message. And here's what David responds. David said to the messenger, thus you... Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. 
You hear what he said? He's not even concerned. He's justifying what just happened to Uriah. In verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I, I think this spot is really interesting in David's life. Um, he slept with another woman's life, another man's wife. He's gotten her pregnant. He's tried to cover it up multiple ways. Once by just, hey, come, take a night off. Once by getting her, him drunk. I think it's interesting. And then he orchestrates this battle, this battle and circumstances to kill Uriah. He murders Uriah because of his decision. And I think it's really interesting because if you think about it, no one knows the whole story except David, right? Joab knows about the murder, right? He knows that, that David wanted him dead. I don't think Joab knew why. Bathsheba obviously knew about the affair, but she didn't know about the murder. Some of these messengers knew some messages, but they didn't really know the whole story. David's the only one who knew the whole story here. And I think it's really interesting because I think in this moment, David truly believes, like, I'm going to get away with this. Or he's not even concerned with getting away. It's just ho-hum, this is my life as king. He's the most powerful man in this kingdom. Who's going to challenge him? Is, is Bathsheba going to come and say something? No. Is, is Joab? No. No, it's just battle. The man died. He can't prove it, right? These messengers, are they going to challenge the king? No. Right? In all, I think in David's mind, he's thinking, I'm good, right? No one knows. I've swept this under the rug. I've, I've orchestrated circumstances. I fixed it. And I think in the eyes of any television drama at this point, as it, it goes to commercial, like David's sitting pretty. He's like, I got what I wanted, and nobody even knows. I think, I think we find ourselves here. Now, I don't mean that you've uh, committed adultery and had the husband murdered. and No, I, I mean, maybe you have. I don't know. Uh, I'm not gonna, we're not going to poll that question to see if you say yes or no to that. I don't want to know. Um, but I think we find ourselves in, in a similar place to David in that, that no one really knows the whole story. They only know what's on the outside, right? They don't really know everything that's involved, right? Our sin can remain private for most of us. Now, some, some people get in situations and their sin becomes public and it's out there for Facebook comments and news stories and, and I'm terribly sorry for those situations. But for most of us, our situation remains private, right? Only we really know the whole story. Only we really know who we really are, right? Maybe not even the people closest to us. And we, we pretend, and, and, and on the outside, I think things for most of us look pretty good. They look pretty put together. They look pretty uh, okay. When in reality, uh, most people are struggling with something, Right? Most people are dealing with something on the inside that maybe their closest friends don't even know about. And my feeling as, as being a youth pastor for almost four years, as being a 30-year-old man, is that most people really are not what they appear to be. And that's a sad indictment of us as humanity, right? We have a, a, a public face, and so did David, right? People thought, oh, he's a good king. He's, he's doing things right. He's, he's advancing our kingdom. They didn't really know the whole story, 
See, I think we look a lot like David before he's found out. And the point is this. If we don't deal with the sin in our lives, it's going to wreck us. Because it wrecks David's life. From this point on, David is never the same after this. David's family is never the same. Israel is never the same after this. If we don't deal with our sin before God, it will wreck us personally, it'll wreck us spiritually, and it'll wreck us. It'll wreck your family, it'll wreck those around you, it'll wreck your church. That's what sin does. When we don't confront it head on, when we just hide it, when we conceal it, when we refuse to acknowledge it before God, before others, it will wreck us. It will wreck us individually and corporately. It has effects on us. David wrote this in Psalm 32, Pate. You can put it up there. Psalm 32. And I don't know if these are connected, written at the same time. But here's what David wrote. He said, when I kept silent, he's talking about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What David is saying is this, when I tried to hide my sin, he says my bones wasted away. And I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but either way, he's describing a physical reality. That he's saying I was sick. It was as if your hand was on me and it was heavy. I didn't have any strength. I was weak. He says when I kept silent... My bones wasted away. There was a physical effect to his spiritual issue. And I wonder how many of us deal with that. Right? When we keep silent, when we refuse to deal with our sin before God, when we refuse to be honest about where we're really at, how many of us deal with personal sickness and struggle because we're refusing to, to deal with our spiritual problem? Right? It feels as if our bones are wasting away. See, David said that. He said, when I was silent, my bones wasted away. But then he goes on, verse 5. He says, and I'm, he doesn't say but, but I'm going to say, but when I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, David had learned this lesson and maybe this was after his experience with Bathsheba. Maybe it was before. I don't know. But he's saying this. When I kept silent, it ate me from the inside. But when I was honest, when I confessed, there was freedom. There was forgiveness. If I kept silent, it ate me away. But when I let it out, when I confessed it, it was freedom, right? Sin only has power over us as long as we keep it in. It only has power over us as long as it's a secret. As long as it's not something that we're dealing with head on. See, sin controls you if you're not dealing with it before God. It controls you. You don't control it. And what David says here is when I confess it, God will forgive me. Right? And he had learned this lesson in Psalm 32, but he didn't know it in 2 Samuel, right? He, he just let it go and he thought, you know what? I got this covered. I got this hidden. No one knows. It's okay. But the reality was, it was going to eat away his bones. So let's, let's keep going. 2 Samuel chapter 12 says this. Let's see how David responds when God confronts him about his sin. Verse 1. 
And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet. God would speak to and he would go speak to the people. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him. He's going to tell him a story, a parable. It's made up, but it's meant to describe a point. And Nathan says this to David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, I'm not a pet guy. We don't have dogs. I don't really understand this. But some of you get this, right? This is my, this is my kid, right? This is my little kid. It's a pet. But, but this poor man has one, and he treats it as his own flesh and blood. Now, the story goes on, verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock, which means many, or herd, to prepare for the guest who had come. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. See what he did? The rich man stole the poor man's and killed it and slaughtered it because he didn't want to take one of his own. Verse 5. David says this, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan looks at him, verse 7, and he says this, You are the man. You're the man in the story. You're the rich man. I'm not talking about some rich man who did stole a lamb. That's not what I'm talking about. You are the man. You're the one in the story that I'm talking about. See, what's so obvious to us as we read David uh, committing adultery and murder and drunkenness and all these things, what's so obvious to us and what's so obvious to God throughout the whole story is, is completely blind to David. I'm not even sure he knew what he was doing was wrong. And so God sends Nathan, this prophet, to come tell him this story. And David sees this story, and he goes, that is not okay. That rich man should not have done that. That is evil, and he doesn't just need to pay him back, but he deserves to die, which is pretty crazy for us. It's like, it's one sheep, dude, right? Is that really worth death? I don't know. But David is enraged at this evil act. And he says, that man deserves to die, not realizing that he was that man. He had taken what little Uriah had who was serving him, he took what? His wife and his life. He took what little Uriah had. He took it all away from him. When he had so much, he had a kingdom. He had, I think he had multiple wives at this point, which we don't have time to deal with. But, like, he had it all. But yet he takes, it's so evil. He commits murder. And David didn't even see it in his own life. And so it takes Nathan looking at him saying, you are that man. You're the one I'm talking about. I don't care about this little lamb. You're the man. And what you have done is the same thing. He gets called out on his sin. And here's how Nathan continues in verse 7. Keep going. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 10. Here's the punishment. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. This is grim. David is embarrassed. He's afraid, I'm sure. He's got this for his future, violence, humiliation. And here's how David responds in the moment. David said to Nathan, finally some honesty. No show, no dance, no facade, finally some honesty. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Man, Nathan exposes David. What David thought he had concealed and, and orchestrated to fix, it gets brought out. The truth comes out. Right? Who he really was was exposed. And David realizes that what he has done, God knew all along. God knew when he lusted after uh, Bathsheba. God knew when he acted on that. God knew uh, when he tried to use lies, drunkenness. God knew when he orchestrated all those circumstances. God was watching. God was aware. And yet David wasn't. David had sinned before God. David didn't just sin against Bathsheba. He didn't just sin against Uriah or Israel. He sinned before God because he went against what God had commanded him to do. And yes, we could, we could talk about all the consequences, right? Sin does have consequences, especially if there is a, a big sin like this. There is consequences, and David deals with that the rest of his life. He loses a child. His family commits violence against itself. Like, his family is jacked up from this point on, right, because of his choice. And there is sin. But the most shocking statement in this whole thing is in verse 13. After David confesses, and, and Nathan looks at him and said, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David had said against the rich man, He deserves to die. So in essence, he knew, I deserve to die. I killed a man. I did all these things. I deserve to die. And God looks at him and says, I have put away your sin. You're not going to die. I have forgiven you. And it only comes after David's confession, right? But this is mind-blowing, right? We sit in this room as a bunch of people no different than, than David. And maybe we haven't committed murder or adultery or any of the big ones that you consider big. But we're really no different. We got sin. We got places in our lives that we've rejected God. And if we're honest, not all of us will be honest, but if we're honest, we know deep down in, we're sinners, and we will choose our own way anytime we can. And we know that what we really deserve is not grace, not forgiveness. What we deserve is to be separated from God. We know that. 
it's interesting because we really only get one sentence of David's reaction here. We get his confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, but it's beautiful that we also get a song that he wrote after this, right? We, we get to see what he really was going on in his heart. Um, so we spent all this time, most of my sermon, talking about the context. And then I want us to go read Psalm 51. And I want you to feel what David felt as he writes this psalm. So flip back to Psalm 51. I want you to read with me. And think. Sit in that shoes. David's sitting in a room after all this has happened. I'm sure there's, there's many tears. There's puffy eyes. There's brokenness. There's embarrassment. And David sits down to write a song to God. He journals. He whatever. And this is what he, he writes. I want you to feel this. The, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Um, he includes that. He wants to remember, this was after I was at my lowest point, the most embarrassing thing I've ever been through. He writes that in Scripture, and then he cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me. Thoroughly for my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I have to think that him being married to Bathsheba after this was a daily reminder of his sin. My sin is ever before me. I know that I am weak. I know my transgressions. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And you hear what he's crying out for? He's saying, I don't, I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to be that guy who got so distracted or, or, or whatever that I, I lost total sight of what was good and right. I don't want to be that, God. And you have broken me, but he said, I want to hear joy. I want to hear gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is a murderer we're talking about. This is an adulterer crying out to God, God, forgive me. God, wipe it clean. God, I want to be new. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, oh God. That means he doesn't have a clean heart. He said, God, you've got to create this. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. He knows that's what he deserves. He doesn't deserve to be king. He doesn't deserve a relationship with God. But he's begging, God, don't, don't take me away from your presence. That's where I want to be. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. And the verse that is pounded in my head over and over, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, it just seems like David realizes finally, like, I drifted. 
I've I've gone so far away from where I started with you. I am nowhere near where I needed to be. And I've lost the joy. I've lost the the, the pleasure, the the goodness, the, the, the happiness of being in a relationship with you. God, I've lost that. He realizes that he's forgotten how good it is to walk closely with God. And I don't know about you, but I feel that. I feel that. Right? Life happens. We drift. We, we move away from God for whatever reason. Maybe not on purpose. We're not trying to become adulterers and murderers, but we drift. And we, we, we get away from what God has called us to be. And what he's, he's crying out, God, is, God, restore me. Fix me. Cleanse me. Free me, God. I don't want to be enslaved to this sin. Man, and I feel that today. I don't know if you do. I don't know where you're at. I know about half of you aren't, are about right there. Man, you need God to restore the joy of salvation in you. You know you've been saved, but you need to remember how good it is to walk closely with God. You need to move past some sin, get, drag some of that stuff out in the light, confess it, and be free from it so that you can move forward in joy. Right? That's what David is crying out for. Let's keep going verse 13, and then we'll finish all the way to 17. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He wants to use this experience to help others come out of sin. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He had something to, to praise God for because he deserved death. He deserved uh, rejection and being cast out from God, but God saved him and forgave him. And he goes, God, just open my mouth because I want to praise you for what you've done. I don't deserve this. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. What he realizes in the end is like, I can't go kill a lamb and make this okay. That's not going to be enough. I've got to be right on the inside, right? And we're really no different. Our sacrifices, don't, we don't actually have an altar where we kill animals, contrary to popular belief, okay? We don't. But we give all kinds of sacrifices before God. We say, I'll go to church more. Oh, I'll go to a life group. Oh, I'll give money. Oh, I'll do this. And maybe that'll make me feel right with God. See, but that's not what God wants. He says the sacrifices that God is pleased with is a broken and contrite heart. And really what that is, I, I, the way I'd sum that up is an honest heart, right? No longer putting up the front and the, the facade and the the pretend thing that everyone sees and thinks is okay. He says, no, 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 what God wants is a broken and contrite heart. I almost fell off the stage. What God wants is an honest heart. He doesn't care about your show and your games and all the things you do. He says, no, no, he wants you to be honest in your heart about where you really are. Here's how I want to finish. I want us to just spend, say, two minutes, just right where you are, Praying personally, and, and we're just going to put up uh, Peyton. I think I've got a bunch of them, but I'm not out. I don't have time, and y'all are getting hungry. So, um, put up verse three, the second one. Man, sometimes our prayer life struggles, and we don't know what to pray. We're just like, God, I don't know. Bless the world, right? And we don't know what to pray. And it's helpful to use scripture to pray. So, just right now, wherever you are, if you, we're going to spend just one minute on each of these verses praying. And use scripture to help prompt you to pray, right? 
So this one, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So here, just pray right now, wherever you are, if you need to pray out loud, silently, right, whatever. Pray that God would forgive you. Confess your sin to him. Be honest with him. Ask him for forgiveness. And he wants to. Like, he doesn't want you to stay addicted to that or enslaved to sin. He wants you to be free. And so pray to him. Confess it to him. Pray that you could be honest. Just pray for a minute. In verse 12, look at it. Verse 12, God says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And I know about half of you need to pray this today. Pray that God would restore the joy, right? Maybe you've lost it, maybe you've drifted, maybe you've gotten away for whatever reason, good, bad, ugly, whatever. Pray right now. Pray that God would restore joy. If you're not in that dry season, pray for somebody that is. Pray for a friend or family member that they're, they're struggling. Pray for them. Pray that God would restore the joy in their life. Give them new life. our worship team comes forward um, let me pray for us if you would stand with me God I pray that you would God forgive us God we're, we're no different than David God we're sinners who reject you God and it's, sometimes it's ugly if we're honest and I pray that you would forgive us God you don't have to God but we confess that we are that and we want mercy we want forgiveness and we pray that you would give that I pray that you'd set people free that they wouldn't be enslaved to their sin any longer, God, but that they would walk in freedom. God, and I pray that you would restore the joy to us, God. May we not become so ho-hum with this fact that you have forgiven such great sinners as us, God. May we not be so dry and lifeless, God. We want to see this place and ourselves be a place that um, is joyful because of the salvation that you give. So, God, restore that in us. Bring that back. God, I pray that you would strengthen us. God, we need you just like David needs you. We love you and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.